Greetings, everyone. This is CM Kozeman again, and we are back with TK Sivgin for what will hopefully become a series of interviews about basically life in other words, the history of science and speculative evolution, speculative zoology, and I guess anything interesting that we can wrap our minds around. So I hope you're having a good day. And uh, last week, uh, TK and I spoke about, well, a lot of things, but we got to the point uh, at which we were discussing Kepler's, uh, what could arguably be the world's first speculative evolution project with uh, jo no, none other than Johannes Kepler, the great uh, mathematician and astronomist. And he had a... He had a book called Somnium about a dream of a trip to the moon. And in Kepler's work, the moon is inhabited by a variety of strange creatures and uh, strange, uh, dare I say, proto-ecologies. So in our last episode, TK Sivgin and I spoke mostly about uh, TK's Rhenia project, which is the evolution of life in a space station with different biomes i mean go check out the video is in the video the link is in the video description so we did not have much time to discuss uh, somnium and other details of course being ourselves we ventured into a lot of fun and entertaining tangents but that's the best thing about podcasting interviews in general so today we're probably gonna we're gonna properly tackle kepler's somnium so Right on to you, TK. What do you think? Well, yeah, well, last time we at least discussed much of the background that was that Kepler was writing in. Like you already had, of course, the Copernican Revolution, where people realized, oh, the Earth is like the other planets. And then, of course, the, then you could argue, wait, if the Earth is like other planets, are the other planets also like Earth? Mm-hmm. <laughs> And you already had people like Giordano Bruno, who mm -hmm. possibly like were like the first man in like Renaissance era Europe who speculated about life on other planets. And reading Bruno's text, he, he, he is very prophetic in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Like not only does he like uh, speculate about how humans might in the future uh, visit other planets and like he says the most like the technology will be some kind of vehicle. So he, he kind of like already predicts like rockets and stuff. He, he actually predicted rockets. Well, not. He says, like he outlines various like I, uh, various like um, methods by which a human could go to another planet, mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. astral projection, the, the force of imagination, or like being, I believe he also like... Uh, discusses being transported there by angels or other uh, other beings which is of course relevant later was this but, the book was this the book where they jokingly said the the morning dew could help us reach the sun so there was one researcher i don't know if it was this particular guy you're talking about but maybe it's someone else contemporaneous but there was a crazy idea about this guy basically waking up very early every morning and collecting the dew from uh, leaves, you know, when especially in uh, Europe and North America, in the mornings there's a mist, so it collects as little droplets, even if there's no rain or whatever. So this guy had the 
internally consistent logic that the dew landed from the moon at night because the sun wasn't around. And then when the sun came up, it was somehow elementally drawn to space. So it didn't evaporate. It actually flew up in little molecules. So what this guy proposed was collecting all the little bits of sun dew with little like uh, water syringe or something, collecting them in little bottles, attaching them to his shirt and then flying basically. But uh, yeah. I don't know if these are the same people we're talking about. No, like Bruno had a lot of like esoteric ideas, but I don't think he proposed it. Like he said, like the most likely method by which a human in the future could go to another planet is through some special vehicle, like an airship. <laughs> and there were later novels that actually picked up on this idea because, you know, it was thought like space was not a vacuum, but was like filled with ether. So like <laughs> a lighter than air gas. So if you could uh, make like a va like a vacuum device for like an airship, where like the instead of a balloon you have like a like a cylinder made which has just a vacuum inside, you could like float into the air with mm -hmm. that and then through the ether and then travel all the way to other planets like that. So those were I... like ideas around space travel. But yeah, I... that is, so like but I, what I meant is that that Bruno was prophetic in the idea that technological progress will get us mm -hmm. one day to other planets. Yeah, so not a natural phenomenon. Like, you you just don't get caught in a tornado, but you actually make a yeah. vehicle. Yeah, that's like the first time you he, someone speculates about technological space travel instead of like these like fantastic meets. And Bruno is also interesting because he also basically like he kind of predicts like this debate of like convergence versus contingency because he like outright argues that life on other planets does not have to look like life on earth because mm -hmm. he sees like like the direct argument he uses is like humans use blood vessels to transport water and trees use tracades and stuff so if even on earth life forms find two different solutions for the same problem why not also on other planets I think that's way ahead of his time. I yeah, think. really. Like even more than the spaceships. Yeah. Also, like in this day, we take the idea of a vehicle so much for granted. But of course, now that you describe it this way, it makes sense that like the you most know, the basic best... concepts took the longest time for people to dream up. Yeah, the best, like the most advanced vehicles of his times would have been like those like transatlantic wooden ships. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, I guess they were banking on finding the wood for the sea that is the eater. So yeah. maybe, as you said, it was vacuum or some, I don't know, moonstones or whatever. Yeah. So moving on to Somnium. So how did this relate to uh, Bruno's yeah. work? Well, not directly. Like I, this is like uh, more setting the like the background in which Kepler writes. In like Kepler mostly bases his work off that of Galileo, actually. And like mm -hmm. Galileo also comments on Kepler's work and stuff, and they like supported each other. And Kepler also, he was the student of Tycho Brahe, which we'll get important later. I mean, uh, going on to Somnium, I tried to read it, but I guess there's no way to properly read it. I can't uh, understand the Latin it was written in. Yeah, I have a German translation, if that's helpful, right here with me. Yeah, and yeah. So, like, so, let me let me just like um, like say like go into the history of this book. Like, 
he attempted to write it in 1608 as I believe like a master's thesis, which mm -hmm. is pretty awesome to think about. You for your master's thesis, you write a novel. Yeah, that's back in the good old days yeah, when right. uh, academy yeah. wasn't as rigorous. Yeah, basically in 1608 he attempted to write this, and mm -hmm. like he gave like his friends like early like drafts of this, and this actually got him into trouble because. Mm -hmm. You know, like the, the story begins with Kepler, like he, he writes from an ego perspective. So I was like sitting on my table, I was reading a book about the Bohemian history, and then I fell asleep. And then in my dream, I was myself again going through a market. And on the market, I saw an ancient book written by someone named Duracotus. Then he tells the story from Duracotus' perspective. So there's like many layers on this. Several, story. several layers yeah. of immersion. Yeah, exactly. And Duracotus is a man from Thule, which is a name from Greek mythology that uh, Kepler identifies with Iceland, which at this ah. time was like a very mysterious country. And there were like all sorts of stories of like witches and demons living on Iceland. And Duracotus ah. says, like, tells about his childhood, like his father was like 150 years old but he died before he got to know him mm -hmm. and his I guess, mother sorry and his i guess mother, this, sorry sorry <laughs> i guess you talk you, you talk there's a bit of lag so sorry to our listeners as well i guess maybe this was a plot device designed to shield himself from I don't know if heresy was a big deal back then, but certainly the Catholic-Protestant conflict was raging. Exactly what I'm getting at, because oh, Duracotus' okay. mother was uh, like a herbalist, like a um, kind of alchemist kind of woman. Like she uses, she uses like herbs to make like uh, healing potions and stuff. And because this book has many like autobiographic elements, and when Kepler gave out these drafts, mm -hmm. it actually got him and his family into trouble. Because Kepler's mother was accused of being a witch. Oh my. Yeah. And they had to go through like many like trials and stuff. Like ultimately she was uh, proven Acquitted. to not be guilty. So she got to survive this inquisition. But it left like a like a big like damage on Kepler and his family. And it scarred is, them for life. Yeah. And this is why like probably like 90% of this book is like explanatory notes where Kepler says, I meant this and that by this. And that, you know? <laughs> so like to like, so to create any plausible deniability. And it's also why this book was never actually published during Kepler's lifetime. Like he died 1643, I believe. And this book was published, no wait, I think 1630. And the book was published 1634 by his son so it was only published posthumously much like copernicus's work probably because kepler himself was scared that he would get into further trouble if he was actually publishing this and in the book which kepler said he discovered in a bazaar and was written by this mysterious icelander yeah. The, the moon was called levania right i mean yes. when i was doing my uh, lunch time of research trying to probe into the mysteries of this work. I first thought maybe Somnium was the name he had given to the moon, but no, it was actually like... It's like the name of the was, story, like a, it means sleep or dream. Yeah, it means it all sleep or dream, yes. Yeah. Exactly. So I had to like go through those layers myself. Of course, not understanding the language properly didn't help. 
but the moon itself is called Levania. Yeah, there is an interesting reason for that. Like, like he says he could have given it like the Greek name of the moon or any other language, but he chose the Hebrew name because it simply sounded more mysterious. Ah. Yeah, I think like he adapted it from like Lebania or something with a B. I would have to look for that note again. Like, yeah, I'm also checking like what the moon means in Hebrew. So just uh, give me a second here as well. But uh, certainly, I mean, maybe he was trying to probe the very depths of uh, biblical language, like the original uh, Old Testament language. But that could be it. Yeah. Well, yeah, but we, have, we haven't we haven't gotten to that part yet <laughs> because I like I'm trying to like okay, reconstruct okay, the so. whole story to you. So basically, he reads this book by Duracotus, and now we have like who tells about first about his childhood on Iceland and about his mother, and like one day his mother mm -hmm. like she like sells bags of like these herbs. And one day, young Durakotus, when mm -hmm. he was just four years old, accidentally opens one of his packets to look inside. And his mother gets so angry at that that she takes him, brings him to the port, and sells him to like some uh, ship crew. Ah. Yeah. And that, so he lives on a ship uh, away from his mother, and the ship like sails all the way to Denmark, where. Tycho, uh, where Durakotus is discovered by Tycho Brahe, who was also ah. the teacher of Kepler in real life. So you mm -hmm, already mm -hmm. see like these autobiographical elements coming in. He's all C persona, basically. Yeah, basically, yeah. They're like again, like to like create all like these layers of plausible deniability, but then still be about him in a bit, in a in a way. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. then like from Tycho Brahe, Kepler learns all sorts of. And Durakotus, see, even I'm making the mistake. <laughs> even I'm mixing them up. So uh, we know who's who. We know who's who. Yeah. So yeah, Durakotus learns all sorts of astronomy. And then, like, he sails back to Iceland where he meets with his mother again. And his mother is like, uh, sorry that she did sell him off. And then he <laughs> tells her, yeah. And then he tells her, oh, I learned all sorts of astronomy. And then his mother is like, Oh, nice. You learned the same thing as I did, but with different methods. Because I ah. also know a lot about the stars, but I, not through like telescopes or something, but because I talk with uh, demons who can travel all the way there. And I can show you Whoa. how to do that. Yeah. It is important to note that uh, when Kepler writes about demons, he like needs the old Greek word daimion. Which so is not something, of, not, not like this, like a uh, Christian idea of a demon, you know, like this evil creature from hell, but more like uh, something akin to a muse. Like an elemental creature, basically, or no, like a, like a, like a personification of ideas and ah, uh, ah, okay. the sciences, okay. basically like, apparently like a, uh, Durakotus' mother like directly talks with the demon of astronomy, who who knows all about ah. this. It's like people ideas about it. I think this also like kind of has connections to the whole idea, especially it's prevalent in uh, Islamic legends about how jinns can uh, impart you wisdom or something like that. Yeah. But uh, certainly something to note. It's also interesting to notice that. 
There's a bit of Freudian like uh, mother and uh, offspring rivalry going on there. Yeah. Like that is also true, yeah. So basically, yeah, she tells him Artis and then she tells him, look, look, we can talk with him. And then so they go into like some like opening in the forest and they mm-hmm. put like towels around their heads to like focus their vision. Mm-hmm. And then they like uh, uh, call this demon. And then the narration switches again to like this demon just telling us about how people can travel to the moon and how it mm-hmm. actually is on the moon. Oh, so how do they travel? Like, is this ever revealed? Yeah, it's actually told in detail. Like, first, the, the demons, like, the demons are the ones who help humans go to the moon. Mm-hmm. But they only do it with a select few of people, select people, like, ones that are used to long ship voyages. But mm-hmm. also, like, I believe he says, like, directly, like, old women that ride on broomsticks. So... Witches without calling them by their name, which is probably witches. what got yeah, yeah. Kepler into trouble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And basically, the way they, um, the way they uh, transport a human to the moon is first you are like you're given an anesthesiac because of the emotions mm-hmm. that you have to go through, like would destroy your body if you were like very stiff. So you have to be basically asleep. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. And then, like, all, like 16 demons or so, like, go underneath your body, and then they just push you up into the sky all the way to the moon. Oh. Under, like, intense speeds mm-hmm. and, like, with very little air. So, like, like, you have to put, like, a wet cloth in front of your mouth to be even able to breathe. This is very interesting, and I would like to, like, uh, open a side section here. Yeah. Because some of these things that uh, you described uh, through Kepler and his OC persona and his First. OC persona's uh, mother issues, they're very similar to uh, a tradition which was believed in uh, basically Scotland's, the highlands of Scotland and basically northern uh, British Isles in general. And they have something called uh, the second site in which like you do something like very similar you have to be from a chosen line but it helps to be from a chosen line but basically anyone from this particular province or the highlight highlands is said to be able to do this and what they do is like like it's similar to that wrapping towels around you kind of thing i'm i, mean, I read the books and like there was something about basically you close your eyes and climb onto the knee of someone who's facing the opposite distance from you and then there are also things like walking around at night with like a towel over your head, basically in a forest or something. And through this means, uh, you don't get to travel to the moon, but you get something called the second sight, which is the ability to see the future, the ability to get in touch with paranormal beings. And in rare cases, the ability to transliterate from uh, location to location. So, I mean, I guess that was like a common uh, North Sea or I guess Nordic kind of folk magic. Indeed. Which I remember reading some secondary literature which does propose that Kepler was basing his ideas off like myths like that. I mean, it's very, very possible. And 
I'm certainly there are people among our listeners who know more about uh, Scottish legends of second sight and transliteration. I mean, I remember the way I got into this whole uh, second sight and Scotland thing was I was reading a biography of a, a British lady from the 1990s. And she was like basically a member of the Scottish aristocracy. And she was saying, yeah, things like this used to exist. People just don't know now. I mean, she was a bit tongue in cheek, of course. But then I got into uh, like the I studied the sources she mentioned. And a lot has been written about this. And like if any of our listeners want to find out more, go and search for Second Sight and Scotland. So a version of space travel before there was space travel. Yeah. For some reason, I've been wondering if there is also like a method to, by which you can like see through water and then look into the, like Loch Ness. Ah, and the rendering see, water. Uh, is there something in there really? Maybe, maybe. I mean, okay, this is another whole weird tangent, but there is there's uh, tales of folk magic in Turkey that supposedly allow people or they are helping jinns uh, to see through the bottom of a lake or the sea in order to find sunken treasure and mm. i guess this was a more practical use for the ability to see through water but in our current day and age there's something very interesting and romantic about this and it's like being in a computer game where you can uh, toggle Activate different cheats. layers or yeah, yeah cheats or like uh, toggle different layers on and off so the water layer is rendered transparent and i'm sure there's at least one person out there who's been reading a lot about uh, second sight or uh, spirit beings or folk magic or something. And then basically made the matrix reference. That is to say, we live in a extremely advanced digital simulation and the Damians or the demons or the jinns, they are basically just like uh, editors or uh, moderators. And if you ask them nicely. Or, or worse, computer viruses. Oh, 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 yes, yes, yes. If you ask them nicely, they can show you where the loot is. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, man, the simulation field, that's like a whole other like rabbit hole. Yeah, we can probably do another two episodes about uh, this whole simulation thing. Oh, but, but I guess we're going to be recording new episodes every two weeks or something. So I really look forward to discussing more. Yeah, I, I have a lot of other weird stuff I've been thinking about and which I would like to talk with you. Like I, I've been re- uh, listening to the audiobook of Communion by Whitley Strieber, for example. Oh, I have the actual book and I actually have its sequels too. I, I discovered is it, is them with in... the creepy cover of the alien. Yes, yes, it is. It is with the like extremely unsettling cover. Yeah. And I... then co- co- Communion has a sequel too. It's called, well, yeah, it's I, very I, silly of me, but I have to go up and look at it. One second. That's fine. It's called Transformation. So there's another uh, there's another book that's the follow-up to Communion by Whitley Strieber. It's called Transformation. Uh, and there's even a third book in which he basically wrote a fiction about his original account with Communion. He basically did something just like Kepler did. Uh, but 
because it was fiction, I didn't want to get it. But I had the first two books, and yeah. I just I'm just waiting for a time. Did he not also write the script for the movie himself? I guess he did, but that movie is so scary. I have never been able to bring myself yeah. to watch it. Like, 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 yeah, like, like the first time you see the alien, like look through the door. Yeah, that is very scary. But honestly, like later on, it becomes kind of funny, like not in a good way. Like, <laughs> you know, this scene where Christopher Walken, like he walks into the spaceship and then he sees like this little blue man and then he just like uh, mm -hmm. dances with them. That is so hilarious. I love that moment so much because it's kind of wholesome. Well, I need to look into it. I mean, there's a couple of movies like that. There's Communion. There's Fire in the Sky. Oh. And then, then there was a, like a psychological horror movie made in the several, same era. I, I just don't remember the name now, but for like Is deep, the one with the deep unsettling... It's the one with basically... A man returns from Vietnam. He's stricken with Vietnam syndrome, but it then turns out that it's not about Vietnam at all. And Jacob's Ladder. Jacob's Ladder, yeah, that one. one. Oh my God. That Jacob's Ladder, that move, like, you need to hold a gun. You need to hold me for ransom because it's so scary. I mean, those movies, Jacob's Ladder, and then also. Uh, well, maybe communion is an easy one, but also fire in the sky, the one about the Travis yeah. Walton abduction case. These these movies also have some of the best uses of practical special yeah. effects. Like the aliens in fire in the sky, they look still look so real. Like unbelievable. It's amazing how um, they did that. Like that's the the one practical effect where the eyes look the most real in any movie I've ever watched. Unbelievable, unbelievable. Just then, of course, CGI came along and kind of spoiled the whole party. Yeah, right. But these movies, I cannot, Jacob's Letter, Fire in the Sky, and Communion, I can't watch for the life of me. Also, to this list, I must add the original uh, Event Horizon, which is just so gory and so scary. It's just, anyways. Uh, uh, with Sam Neill, right? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 almost, I, I almost wanted to say Alan Grant, but that's the role he played in Jurassic Park. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's become uh, associated very closely with Alan Grant, and <laughs> with Ellen Grant in outer space and some people say the that some people are so into Warhammer that they want to believe that uh, Event Horizon was the first Warhammer movie because let's give a little let's give a little context for our uh, listeners uh, in Warhammer in order to travel from planet to like between interstellar space you need to go through hyperspace but hyperspace is literally the hell full of demons and the spirits of the dead so in event horizon uh, there's a experimental faster than light spaceship it returns from a voyage quite unexpectedly bringing along its cargo of demons and hallucinations and it's just horrible extremely scary and there are some people who are like extremely like they look at the decorations and say well this is the this is the way design is gonna move on forward and then they look at like in event horizon there's like somebody's watching the news or something and they say ah this this news foretells the coming of the emperor of man or something like that like, it's like jfk assassination levels of uh, like trying to squeeze out details from in information 
I have to say amazing. though, like the the, the the design of the spaceship in Event Horizon, it has like this kind of gothic style, which does sort of fit with 40k. Yeah, yeah, it does. I'm. Mean, you could see that evolving into some of the 40k uh, spaceships and. Yeah. God, I don't know. <laughs> I've been reading a lot of Warhammer lore recently, but more about Warhammer fantasy battles rather than 40k. Well, this is one of my uh, pet hobbies too. I think most people on the internet, I just listen to those Warhammer channels in the background and mostly I listen to about my favorite races, which are the Tyranids and also the Necrons, the green uh, pharaonic looking zombie guys. Yeah. And there's just something about like listening like I probably will never get to play Warhammer. The closest I've been to a local Warhammer shop was to buy these very fine brushes because I want to paint my uh, uh, like artwork and watercolors and stuff like that. It's a it's a pro tip, by the way. If you go to a Warhammer shop, you can find high quality art brushes for cheaper prices than you would at an art store. At least that's the way things roll in my part of the world, but maybe yours too. I do have miniatures actually, but let me show them. Oh, oh, sure, sure. Uh, dear listeners, if you're also into Warhammer, write in the comments and name me your favorite creature or your favorite faction. In CM Cosm and Worse, there's only one faction, and these are the Tyranids. But let's see, TK's collection. Here, it's a skin. Ah. Yeah, I'm more oh. of a Warhammer fantasy guy rather than 40k. Oh, so this is like the side fantasy line that's well, like, it used to be not the main as great. Really? I didn't know yeah, that. Like, there was first Warhammer fantasy battles, which was like playing in this kind of Dungeons and Dragons as fantasy world. And then 40k originally started out as imagining what that world would be like 40,000 years in the future, which is why you yeah, have like the same dark. race, is why you have like elves and orcs and humans in space and stuff but then mm -hmm. it kind of like diverged into like separate universes and now the only thing that really connects them is that it's the same races and the chaos gods are also the same like you have nurgle slanish corn singe all ah. in like fantasy and also 40k and there's some implication that the universes are connected through the chaos warp but yeah, that was a skin I showed you. Look, a Bastiladon, which is like an ankylosaur kind oh, of Oh, this is cool. This is so cool. Yeah, the uh -huh. Lizardmen are like one of my favorite factions. It's like Aztec dinosaur people riding larger dinosaurs. Well, I just didn't know about this, but it's certainly a relief to see these dinosaur creatures and not some um, beefed up guy with a helmet and armor. Yeah, that's it's uh, a real relief. That's the cool thing about Warhammer Fantasy. Like the yeah, the, 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 that like universe officially ended, I believe, in 2012 or something, because they like they wrote a novel series called The End Times that officially like showed how the whole hmm. world in that universe like was destroyed by the Chaos Gods and then like reborn into Age of Sigmar. But then uh, there is this uh, video game studio Creative Assembly who. You know, makes like the Total War games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they made Total War Warhammer based on the eighth edition of Warhammer Fantasy, and it became so popular again that it like uh, resurrected the whole uh, franchise. Franchise. So much that Games Workshop is now working on Warhammer: The Old World to bring back Warhammer Fantasy. And yeah, I mean, 
you're obviously far more adept at Warhammer lore, but did you also play with the games? Did you have your own army no. and matches and everything? I, I have a few miniatures, but I have never like actually played with them. I, I bought them because they look cool. Well, this is so cool, though. It looks like a Glyptodon-type um, yeah. ankylosaur as well. Yeah, it has, and it has like a solar stone on its back, which like shoots lasers. Because oh, there's nice. a lizard man in this, so like the Warhammer planet was like created by aliens called the Old Ones, who mm-hmm. have like this um, magical technology that ma- makes them godlike, basically. And... Uh, like first they created the lizardmen as like their direct servants and then they yeah. created the younger races like humanity elves and dwarves and stuff and then they had like war gates at the north and south poles which one day just collapsed and like opened like portals into the chaos warp and so like demons drifted out and stuff and the old ones like completely died out uh, and the elves and the lizardmen worked together to like let not close the portals but make them weaker and since then, oh. like the Warhammer rule has been like gradually like uh, degenerating into like into more and more well, chaotic factions. Just goes to show what a virgin normie I am in uh, Warhammer lore. I mean, you certainly know more. I mean, my primary exposure to this thing is from uh, YouTube, basically. And I have a friend who's like super into their lore and games as well. But obviously, yeah. I didn't know about the Lizard Man. Now, uh, my love on my unfettered love for the Tyranid mm. race might be challenged. They are but... kind of similar because the Lizardmen also have like this cask system where like the highest ones are Slan, which are these like giant toad people that are like so fat and but also so like telepathically powerful that they never walk except they like like uh, sit on floating chairs and they Based. can they can like do this with a snip of a thing and destroy like a whole army of demons with their mind. Based. Yeah. Super based. Then there is like Saurus who are like basically dinosaur people who are like the main warriors. And then there's skinks like this who are like smaller lizard people. Oh, really nice, man. Yeah, there's also chameleon skinks who are really cool. And then there's like crops. They are ranged units, I guess. Yeah, there's ranged units. There's infantry, normal. There's They even have like a terror bird cavalry in some lore. Oh, nice. Like skinks riding terror birds called Kulchan. <laughs> yeah, and then there's also cropsigors who are like giant crocodile people that just like punch, <laughs> like they mm-hmm. like they could take probably like a space marine and just punch them to death with one. Well, they they took that concept from the Donkey Kong Super Nintendo games. Oh yeah, like the, yeah, the Kremlins. A, there was a whole race of yeah, there yeah, was yeah. a whole race of crocodile monster. Yeah, I love interconnected universes. Uh, those games were so yeah. good. They're, Have you like, played the new ones? Best I've played the first two ones on the Nintendo yeah. Super Nintendo s- yeah. system. I played and the game the... design of mm-hmm. yeah, like you... the level. Sorry. Yeah, if you if you can, like you should play like the new ones, Donkey Kong Country Returns and Tropical Freeze, because it's like those old games, but like times one hundred. Oh my. Well, another one of another one in the long list of computer games that I have to play. Yeah. Okay, so let's getting back on to on Kepler. track to Kepler and Somnium. Yeah. And this is why I love these interviews that all we take all these side side avenues. Yeah. And it's more of a podcast than about... you think about it. 
Yeah, yep. Now it's officially become a podcast because we're recording episode two. Yeah. Okay, so he he is like a phase shifted basically or no clipped uh, for the lack of a better word. Yeah. No clipped on the moon and and then what happens? Then the demon just like goes into like a very very long like um narration about what are the conditions on the moon like astronomically speaking which is actually mm-hmm. the majority of the story like how would it be for a human to stand on the moon like how would he see the earth how would he see the other stars how would how long would the day be and that's where like the real science gets into because like the main point of this novel is to show that mm-hmm. for someone standing on the moon it would appear that everything else is revolving around the moon and like uh-huh, basically uh-huh. Kepler was trying to make a point for like Copernicanism like it's all yep. a matter of perspective but it's actually the center of the universe yep yep yeah and, and so like Kepler notes a few interesting things about what life would be like on the moon like climatically speaking because you know like how long is a month about 30 days what are monks modeled after the cycles of the moon so what is act what is a day on earth lasts 30 earth days on the moon aha like you need yeah 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 30 earth days for the sun to be at the same spot it started again so on one side of the moon you have about 15 days of daytime and 15 days of nighttime Mm -hmm. which of course creates a really extreme climate imagine oh sure sure certainly imagine being in a desert where the sun never sets for 15 days then there must be a lot of erosion too because the like water would co- keep freezing and expanding so it would be like yeah i don't know very smooth i guess i mean considering there was an atmosphere and all that I exactly mean, that's why i when i drew made that drawing of levania i i drew very high mountains by implying there was like less gravity but also a lot of erosion going on too but mm-hmm. i don't know Yes, exactly. Yeah, but he also goes a bit into that actually. Like he notes that like the water like follows like the nighttime side around the planet. So there's like the moon's own versions of tides. Mm-hmm, where, like mm-hmm. this massive like so during the daytime there is like what is once desert. During the nighttime becomes like flooded with water and then freezes over. Mm-hmm. So you have so you go from a desert to like the Antarctic basically in the span of one month. I guess because of that, the the moon creatures, which in this book are called Levanians, they're either like extremely long-legged or flyers or they build ships or something. I have made notes about what Kepler says about moon life. Basically, yeah. So Kepler like makes... No problem. Ah, I found it. So basically, uh, yeah, Kepler first notes that there is actually a difference between the far side and the and the near side of the moon, depending on uh, regarding the, the severeness of the climate. Um, it's also amazing he gets that yeah, right like the, in the, that time. Yeah, like the, the like let's call it seasons on the far side are actually way more extreme than on the near side because the near side, when it mm-hmm. when the near side goes through its night time, it does still receive some light that is re- being reflected from Earth. Yep. And, the, and the far side does not receive that. And also the far side during its nighttime is far away from the sun than the near side is during its um, 
during its night time. So basically yep. the seasons are far more pronounced on the far side, which is, I believe, why Kepler notes that the, the, the it is basically a wasteland with like no settlements and all, while the near side is where more you would find like uh, farms and fields and yep. cities. I mean, at least comparatively more inhabitable. Yeah. Or there could be tunnel people. Yeah, there he notes that, that most side. of the life forms on Mars, like live, uh, not Mars, uh, on the moon, live underground in like mm. deep caverns. And uh, they have like elaborate um, piping systems to bring like water from the surface into their caves to like cool them down. You could also derive power from that. I mean, big turbines underground to yeah, exactly. power the cities. And like another parenthesis here that have you been watching uh, this very nice, uh, surprisingly good Apple TV show um, for for all mankind? I have heard of it, but I have not watched it. I mean, I would strongly recommend it to you and all our viewers. Basically, it's an alternative history of uh, the space race in which the Soviets get to the moon first. And then the U.S. pours all the money it would have poured to the Vietnam War into an extreme space race. And then there's there's a moon base, but it's like basically the size of a, a telephone booth or like a little room. And uh, then there's conflict and then there's expansion and the characters are all very well drawn. I mean... Uh, very nice and progressive without being uh, like too much finger in our eyes about it. I, I really like that show and really recommend it all, to all our viewers. Have you watched the movie Apollo 18? No, no, I haven't watched it's that one. Like Apollo 18 is uh, one of the Apollo missions that was canceled in real life. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. this movie is about like, what if it was secretly acted? But if they secretly did carry it out, so it's about like two astronauts on Apollo 18 who go to the, the lunar south pole. Uh -huh, and uh -huh. there they discover uh, how the Soviets did actually send a manned mission to the moon, but something ah. killed the, the cosmonaut. Oh, and, and there's like, a mystery. Yeah, like, you, you, should I give you, should I reveal what the plot twist is? Please, please do. Like, the moon, the... All the rocks you see on the moon, they are not rocks. It's like crap, like aliens oh that like disguise as rocks. So like when you oh, so good. So they walk across so there's this like really creepy scene where like only in dim lighting you see suddenly all these rocks come to like like legs uh, splay out of the rocks and like <laughs> yeah. so crap crap people on the moon, I guess. Well it's just craps, not people. Like they have gone full carcinization. Not even the moon can escape. It reminded me of this. <laughs> yeah. It reminded me of this really nice scene in uh, the Peter Jackson King Kong. What was it? 2005? 2005, yeah. And they but, fall into these like yeah. deep canyon and there's all sorts of giant insects and monsters. And I love that scene. I mean, it's yeah. one I of my... the book, by the way, the art book. So do I. Skull Island. Yeah. The fauna of Skull Island. It was one of my like formative speculative evolution moments. Yeah, Even I love that book. I, I love the the whole universe they created for that movie. Like I, like I, especially like I played the video game a lot. Actually, it's like usually like these licensed games are like very shitty and mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. they're like cash grabs. But for that uh, game, they actually put effort in it and they made it into a pretty good like survival horror game where you play. 
Jack and you're like alone in ah. the jungle and you have like a gun but with very low ammunition instead you have mostly use like spears and you get attacked by dinosaurs and like like two times your size ah well they really missed a big opportunity by not making a zoo simulator with uh, all oh. skull island creatures there imagine a, that there is a mod for that for uh, you know jurassic world evolution which is like yeah yeah, yeah. someone made a mod where you know, it swaps out the skins of T-Rex for like V-Rex and stuff. So you can have the, all these creatures in your park. I imagine you could have also all the insects and the giant oh. spiders. Oh, yeah. And, and, and all the like land crabs and giant leeches. They even had this like really plausible order of centipedes that evolved to mimic scorpions. Yeah, was just unbelievable. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That those were all, those were like they... They were originally supposed to be in the movie, but the scene got cut, but they did reappear again in the video game as like a common enemy. That's the fun part. <laughs> and man, the Foitodon, the, the scavenger crocodile. Oh yeah, that one was... It... I had that one as a toy, actually, I believe. Oh, I never it, found it, it again. Ah, lucky you. Damn. I mean, I guess the toys were quite good quality too. But yeah. anyways, I mean, Weta Workshop, if you're listening to this amazing podcast... Please consider make us a zoo game for uh, Skull Island. I would play it to none. Anyways, anyways, so back to back to the moon, back to Kepler. Oh, wait, wait, wait! I want to linger ah. on this a little bit. There's oh, sure. so many good franchises where you could make zoo games. Like imagine Darwin Four as a zoo game. Ah, man! And then imagine the mods people would make of oh, those yeah, games. Yeah. Like, unbelievable like generally i want i kind of want a game like that where it's just like an alien zoo simulate like you're on a spaceship like on a space mm-hmm. station and you have to build a zoo for like alien tourists with like all sorts of very like wacky and imaginative creatures there was a game similar to this one's called startopia but you didn't build a zoo but more like a city you know mm-hmm. on a space station for like various species of aliens and I had to like meet all the all their needs and stuff it was pretty fun I had this idea for a one-to-one scaled exotic reptile and amphibian simulation. Because, you know, if you ever kept exotic reptiles or if you ever seen them in a zoo, they're actually like, they don't move around much. Basically, like if you have like a pet exotic poison arrow frog just sits at a corner and the only movement you can see it's actually this gular sack moving up and down. And once in a while it hops around or eats something, so the idea was to make a one-to-one scale. So this would actually like configure your monitor and it would be that size. A one-to-one uh, scale, 4K high-definition terrarium simulator in which you have these like, it, your, your screen would basically turn into this exotic terrarium. And then you could have anything you want, like, you know, a, a coral snake or a king cobra or like one of those extremely rare Australian geckos or even some of those extinct lizards from the Pacific Islands, you could just keep them and it would like be extremely graphic intensive. So like it would be very realistic. Yeah. Planet Zoo is kind of similar. Like it's like a basically modern remake of Zoo Tycoon, but you can also have like these smaller terrarium creatures and they're like fully animated and you can just like watch mm-hmm. their life cycles and stuff but it's probably not as detailed as your idea neat i mean the whole whole 
trick in my idea was that you never get to move around the screen. You just see the screen, but it's very well rendered, all the plants and stuff. And you can drop in a cricket or, I don't know, throw in a frozen mouse or something. Oh, it, Full realism. It, you remind me of this. There is this old Dreamcast game called Seaman. Narrated oh, by Leonard Nimoy of all people. Like it's a very like bizarre game where you were raising a, like a fish with a human face and you could talk to oh, it with like a microphone. Those games, those games. Yes, it was basically a test vehicle for the Dreamcast microphone, but exactly. I remember. Yeah, yeah. And like the, the thing would go through like a life cycle. First it would like first it starts out as a fish, then it like develops legs and gills and stuff, and then it comes like a, a frog man. <laughs> funnily enough i mean that whole fish with a man's face the bizarre t- uh, digital animation trick trick they showcased it i don't know if it's related to the game but they showcased it in this monty python film about the monty oh, yeah. python and the meaning of life yeah i know which thing you mean and there's this whole scene where there's this these like three monty python face fish come together and say hello hello to each other in the most british way imaginable but I always wondered because even like Monty Python films are a bit like surrealistic and out there, but even that scene kind of stood out and wasn't extremely funny. So I always wondered if like the producers had these friends who were making these like digital renders and they just, hey, can we make a segment with this? And they said, okay, why not? I mean, the whole movie was kind of surreal and random. Like, do, do you remember the this, the... The one scene like where they're just like, where did the fish go? And then he's like, like his weird arm movements. Where did the fish yeah, go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was, to be honest, the weakest of the Monty Python films. Yeah, I think uh, so too. Because they were kind of like riding the shockwave of their own success. Yeah. I think the the life of Brian was really nice. And the original episodes are nice. Yeah. Also the the... What was the night? What was it? Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Holy Grail, that's the best yeah. one. And in, in, it has a different title in German. That's why I had to think. Like in in German, it's called the Knights of the Coconut. Ah, I guess it was a marketing decision because yeah. maybe Monty Python wasn't as actually, popular in Germany. No, actually, or was it? Actually, like yeah, I remember. Like uh, Monty Python was at one point so popular in Germany that they made like two special episodes oh. in German, like where the where the Python crew themselves tried to speak only in German, <laughs> but it, it, that was wow. had a oh. whole other layer of like comedy because they couldn't actually speak German, so it sounded like very bizarre. Was there a German or Swiss equivalent? to evolve their own Monty Python, basically, with a similar sense mm. of humor. Not... Like, when I was young, there was the, the Bully Parade by, by Michael Bully Herbig and, like, his friends. And they... Yeah, they, they were also, like, very successful and kind of funny. Then they tried making movies, which, like, successively went, became worse, and then, I don't know. But, yeah, they were funny for a time. Well, I'm pretty lucky in that respect because where I'm from, Monty Python was practically unknown until the mid-2000s when internet made it popular. But uh, uh, my father, having spent some time youth, used to buy these like VHS tapes of uh, Monty Python and also 
the Faulty Towers series with uh, John and all that. So, I mean, they were a formative experience. And I remember, like, it was even this, like, holy grail, pun intended, of all Monty Python products. Basically, you got this enormous branded suitcase containing all episodes on VHS tape in uh, 144p glory. And it cost something like 800 pounds or 600 pounds. And, you know, I mean, it was impossible to buy, but like... Uh, in a few years, it will be impossible to watch because nobody will have VCRs anymore. Yeah, I, so like, I couldn't buy it either. I mean, all we had was like a few pirate tapes and a few official tapes, but... And then the uh, the videotapes of the, like two tapes for Faulty Towers and then Life of Brian, Holy Grail, and um, the, the other one, The Meaning of Life. And that was it. But it was like a whole weird experience. And now, of course, everything is on YouTube. How the times have changed. Yeah. I think there's, there are also Netflix now, at least some of the movies. I guess, but, you know, in my part of the world, you just pirate that stuff. Yeah, of course. <laughs> There's places to watch them all over the place. Not a recommendation. So, so should we, let's, go, let's go back. Like, we derailed too much, probably. <laughs> so, yeah, so the demon talks about all these, like, uh, conditions on the moon and... Then, like in like the last few pages of the work, like um, they talk about what the actual life forms are like. And like you already said, they many have like long legs or wings uh -huh, uh -huh. to like to like uh, and like lead a nomadic lifestyle to like uh, chase like the habitable zone, basically. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. there's also ones which build ships. Yeah, 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 and others simply live underground and. And there is some sense that there's also like permanent settlements on the near side because the conditions there are better. Probably ah. with like irrigation systems and stuff. I mean, when illustrating uh, these Levanians, these moon creatures, I, I, from what I was able to read of the text, I had the assumption that there were maybe polymorphic creatures. So it was like one race with multiple shapes or is it multiple species? I don't know. That is... I mean, you could perhaps interpret that, but I never got that from the text. Like, it's more like, yeah, like mm. it basically mm. like some lunarians are like this, some are like that. I guess depending ah, on okay. the word, how you interpret the wording, it could be a polymorphic. But I always interpret it as like different species and races. Yeah, sometimes I believe he's also simply talking about like animals instead of like intelligent beings. Like for example, yeah, the that ones, was the also ones very the long, unclear to me. Yeah, the ones with the long legs and the wings could simply be like animals and stuff. Yeah, I mean that also seemed a bit unclear to me. But if there are any of those which build boats, mm -hmm. unless they are like those uh, memory people in Man After Man, which instinctively build boats, which is also a possibility, some of them must be like at least human level intelligent or uh, like as an. As advanced a civilization as the Polynesians were on Earth. Yeah. At one point, I believe, like Captain also says, that at least some of the craters on the moon are actually constructs made by like gigantically sized uh, lunarians. Ooh, okay. I missed that one. 
Yeah, like Jules Verne even makes fun of the concept in his own like moon travel story. Ah, but but actually, it's kind of ahead of its time. I mean, the whole idea of a, of a moon race and even like like somehow distantly related to the idea of Martian canals. Oh yeah, you're right. That's actually yeah. That, that, that's the funny thing, like the Martian canals were originally interpreted as natural waterways, similar to mm -hmm. how like the Lunar Maria were interpreted as like actual seas. And yep. then like Kepler went a bit further and said, maybe these are like artificial structures, which does uh, parallel what Lowell did with uh, Schiaparelli's canals, yeah. I wonder if there were any big... And if there were any, it could have given him the idea to like basically mention the canal, mention the liter as such, but I don't know. Yeah. My internet's connection might be a bit weird, by the way. So, yeah, I didn't, I didn't hear the first part of the sentence. I mean, um, I was saying if there were any, I was asking if there were any. You know, because in Europe, they had some canals or irrigation projects or like ramparts or dams around. Maybe if there were any at the time Kepler wrote this thing. So not that I'm aware of. Like, I mean, you, of course, always had the Netherlands, which is which mm -hmm. basically built itself out of the sea. Yeah, yeah. When you true. look at its history. But no, not that I'm aware of. Like the, the idea, idea of the Martian canals, though, was very much inspired by like the, the construction of the Suez Canal. Ah, true. Which was happening true. around the same time. So they, of course, like uh, thought, hey, if we are building like these giant canals from ocean to ocean, maybe the Martians are doing the same. Like sort of projection right there. Yeah, of course. <laughs> like and ev almost everything that has ever been written about alien life is projection. There's yeah, like very, very few exceptions. Like, for example, I know I believe... Uh, like Wayne Barlow's expedition is like one of those few examples where someone genuinely tried making something that is not in any way meant to be like a reflection of humanity. True, true. I mean, it was a bit inspired in part by the ecological movement, which was in full force yeah, at that, the time. That is true, yeah. That, but like the aliens themselves, I mean. Oh, like, yes, yes. Like their psychology like... and stuff is like very completely alien. Yes, in that respect, it's true. Yeah, so Solaris is also another example of like a genuinely alien entity in fiction. I think a lot of a lot of things written by the author who wrote Solaris, Stanislav Lem, he has a book called Eden, in which there's like this extremely alien world, so weird that like I just go back at it, go back at it, and read it just for the descriptions sometimes. There are factories that create living creatures and there are also defective creatures. But of course, that could also be maybe maybe a little like a jab at uh, capitalism as seen from the other side of the Iron Curtain. I don't know. But uh, there is like some sentence in Solaris that also paints the whole story as like being a jab at colonialism. Huh. how like science can sometimes perpetuate those evils like because the scientists in Solaris they try to they come to this plan and try to understand everything about this living ocean and 
Ah, uh, like whole like what you study, you destroy idea. Yeah, basically. I guess so. I mean, truth be told, I watched the, I read Solaris as a in Turkish years ago. It wasn't a great translation. I need to go back and find an English language copy. I guess. Yeah. All right. So going back on Kepler's travels, like yeah. how how does the story end? Like, I, uh, is I he whisked back? Before or? we come back to that, I want like there is some interesting stuff about the Lunarians that we should still talk about, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which because it relates to what you said at the beginning that this might be like the beginnings of like speculative evolution. Because about the nature of uh, yep, yep. the Lunarians, like Kepler says, for example, many of them have like a thick or spongy crust that like during the daytime it like dries up and and like becomes brittle and then falls off. So that's like a very bizarre adaptation to these like harsh climatic conditions. And then mm. Kepler says like he the Tiergattung der Schlangen herrscht ganz allgemein vor, which means that uh, snake-like beings, so reptilian creatures are like the dominant life form on the moon, mm -hmm. which I believe has And he directly, ah. in his notes, he directly says, bases that off the fact that, like, in hot climate regions on Earth, there's mostly, like, uh, snakes and uh, snakes and crocodiles. And he also read, like, reports about people from Africa who apparently, like, it's very funny. Like, he says, apparently people in the South enjoy lying in the sun. I cannot imagine that for us Europeans. <laughs> <laughs> That's literally what he writes. It's very funny. So like he, well, who knew? Who knew? A few hundred years later, people would like pay to get on airplanes and go to different countries and lie down under the sun. Yeah, I mean, yeah, back in the Middle Ages, like a pale skin was seen as like a sign of nobility because the, yeah, yeah. the peasants were the ones working outside in the field and getting a tan. You didn't get, yeah. I guess now the equation is reversed, but the meaning is the same. It's the It ability is... to just hang around and do your own thing. I believe in East Asia, it is still uh, very similar to that, that like pale skin is seen as a sign of beauty. Yeah, yeah. And like also like ethereal beauty. And I don't know. I don't know. Well, yeah, what I wanted to get at is that like Kepler, similar to Bruno, makes like very interesting observations based of, on life on Earth. Like he, he sees like most of... Uh, The moon will be a desert environment, but does well in, on deserts on Earth. Reptiles, therefore, life on the moon probably would look reptilian, which I mean, is very, paradise. Yeah, basically. And <laughs> it's like very similar to how more people in like speculative evolution think about stuff. So I have this environment, I need these and that adaptations. Very, very true. Yeah. Which also, which also, I guess, shows that he had like uh, a good understanding of the of zoology, as far as it went in that time. Yes, I believe so. And like one last weird note that makes stuff like this truly alien. Apparently, like apparently most uh, apparently the there is a very common plant on the moon that looks like a pine cone. Uh huh. And I believe during the night it like opens itself. And out of the seeds spring all the other animals. Ah. So the, the animals derived from plants. And he buys this off of a re very 
of actual accounts from Earth. Like there were there was all sorts of folklore creatures and stuff. They there. used to think barnacles gave birth to actual seabirds for not, a while. Not maybe yeah, but like he, goose goose barnacles. Yeah, I mean there is like no, no it was more like um. Certain plants gave rise to uh, certain insects and also birds. Like there was said to be in Scotland a tree that mm -hmm. the fruit first, you like the duck ass grows out and then the, the wings <laughs> and stuff. And like the beak is like the last thing to disconnect and then it lives almost like a normal goose. That's like legit. Wish I had read that part before making my drawing. Yeah, it makes probably it, updated now. Makes it so but... interesting to think like. I mean, there is life on Earth that technically functions similarly. Like many plants do have like alternating, like many plants and fungi do have alternating generations, where like the the get like the haploid life stage looks different from the diploid one. You don't really see that in animals, but at least some insects do play around with like haploid and diploid uh, genomes. So who knows? Maybe I don't know. I don't. Yeah. Alternating generations. I mean, I think certain parasitic insects, like gall wasps, are certainly on the way to evolving into such things. Like they're integrating, you know, those little wasps that infect a plant, and then the the eggs develop in tumor-like growths in the plant. I mean, it's only a matter of time before some adapt like that. Like the fly, and then the, the the insect and the plant evolve a kind of symbiosis. I mean, you could already say that some most insects are so specialized in their relationships with plants that you know there's a kind of moth for almost every plant out there. So they're not genetically interlinked, but I mean, let's just say that they kind of add on to each other, like uh, yeah. Lego bits. They're like not a super organism, but still like a Com compartment organism you could say yeah yeah yep but of course of course it's like a great visual image to have this like gigantic uh aloe vera type of uh, pine cone like plant and in the day it cracks open and all the lizards come out all the skinks and and maybe the top layers house the flying ones i don't know it's just wonderful to think about so and after like this like description, the story ends very abruptly with Kepler like waking up from his uh, mm -hmm. waking up from his uh, dream inside his bed, and the first thing oh it was just a dream. But then he discovers like remember when he sat down in the forest and like wraps the towel around his head so he could see. The ah. Like he wakes up and the towel is still around his head, and that's how the story ends. Was it a dream or was it not? Yeah, yeah exactly. that kind of. 1990s movie kind of ending. Yeah. The end question like, mark. Or like inception with the yeah. uh, rotating in top or kind yeah. of something like that. Oh well, I mean it was it was a great show. I think we spoke for an hour or an hour or a half. That could be it, yeah. But what I want to say is like I just like I feel like this is like a lost genre like renaissance sci-fi where you mix the very scientific you know like the astronomical uh, observations with like also like supernatural beliefs so instead of like being holy science and, or holy religious it's like something in between and it's just mm -hmm. very 
it's just something very fun that I feel like people could uh, do way more with nowadays. I mean, of course, you still have like supernatural elements and stuff like Star Wars, but... Mm -hmm. Well, I think, okay, two, two points to add here. I think there's a, another author, uh, Emmanuel Swedborg. I mean, he was basically, yeah. he wrote a lot about ethics, and, but one of his books is about basically life on other worlds. And it's just similar to uh, Kepler's journey, but it's like far more extensive. And like it's like in, in this universe, the spirits are connected more intimately with people's lives. And I guess he wasn't trying to avoid critiques. So he just wrote it like in a more open-ended way. Yeah, like but, Swedenborg uh, believed he was a prophet of God, basically. Yeah, yeah. Like he like was starting a religious movement, which one of the basic tenets was um, that the other planets are not just like populated with alien life, but other humans. Mm -hmm, so like, mm -hmm. like yes, human yes. humans, like not like the Star Trek humans, but like actual like you and me. Because I, I read the book about alien life that he wrote, and some of them actually are like Star Trek humans. They just say in this one world, the men have like a sort of dark skin, but their nose is white or like in this other world, the women have yellowish skin or so. It's like yeah. basically Star Trek worlds. Like, but I always find that fascinating too. So it's only a hundred years after, um, hundred years after Levania, right? Yeah. Or but, something. Yeah, like he, yeah, like he was uh, writing around the 1700s. Yeah, that is about a century later. Yeah. And also like a second point to add here is that in this day and age, especially in the United States, there are, there are a lot of people who combine uh, these like personal spirit visions with like dream entities. Sometimes it kind of segs into um, like experiments with DMT or LSD or like, I mean, I, I appeared in an, I had an interview with uh, like a fellow YouTuber last uh, month. I mean, he's a genuinely nice guy. Uh, and his whole, like, worldview was all related with these, like, not only alien abductions, but also visits by beings, which might be spirit beings or beings from another plane or a direct aliens. But there's, like, rich, dare I say, folklore of such uh, very similar belief in the modern day and age. But I guess it's not in as quote-unquote, high layers of fiction. So maybe there's an instinctive uh, narrative being fulfilled there. I don't know. Yeah, there is like a... Yeah, there, that, that is definitely like a trend in, UFO, in ufology that it... that from these like purely scientific alien creatures, you go into like these angelic archetypes. Like, yeah, or, George, like what was his name? George Adamski. Yeah, yeah. Like, Adamski. He says, like he, he, like I, like this. I have to go on a bit on a ten, on a tangent. But like I was scrolling through Netflix and I looked up this like one UFO documentary, UFOs declassified. It's not mm -hmm. a good documentary. There's way better ones. Like this one is like very, like very biased and stuff. Mm -hmm. Because like at one point they say this was the spot where George Adamski claims. To have met an alien from Venus, and then they like narrate over that and stuff, and I'm like, wait, 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 Venus, <laughs> ah. alien from Venus, <laughs> the the planet where it is hot enough to melt lead. 
Yeah, but I think Adamski like specifically claimed they were from Venus. What didn't he? Yeah, yeah, he did. That's the that's the funny part about Adamski. Like he claimed that, uh, he met aliens from like human aliens ah, from ah, like, okay, okay. Venus and Mars and and like the back of the moon. And then late and then like only a few decades later, like NASA showed. Uh-uh. there can't be anything human-like on those planets with those conditions well maybe they live in pine cones or under the ground or yeah, underground course. pine yeah. cones who knows yeah but like honestly but <laughs> reading those accounts i was I had just had to, such a good laugh because like the comedic timing was so good like he claims he was on a spaceship and like saw the the far side of the moon and there he saw like cities and trees and stuff and like mm-hmm, only mm-hmm. like five years or so later like the first soviet satellites like photographed the far side of the moon and said it's, uh-huh, a, it's just parched, great. parched hellscape yeah i always and, thought i always thought that uh, like after world war one there was a big rise in uh, belief in spirit science or like ectoplasm manifestations things like this and i always thought like especially adamski's visions were like Maybe there could have been a trauma response to World War II, and I mean, what he lost there, or yeah, yeah I wanted I, to guess to that. Like, it's I have a like more cynical idea because the idea you get from most of his accounts is like, look, I met these aliens from other planets, and on their planets they have solved all the all their problems. They have solved like their world peace, disease, world peace, and stuff. And yeah, if you like support me if you buy my books and stuff maybe i can like keep my contacts myself and my contacts Mm -hmm. running long enough that i can unlock these secrets from these aliens you know it kind of like is i i mean you know it it sounds bad and i said but if it's kind of like it's kind of like a scam yeah i mean this whole area like uh european trauma after world war ii it's like a very prickly issue because of the nature of the regime that was vanquished. But I always sensed there was a connection there. I don't know. Maybe I could be wrong, but yeah. But yeah, that that is the general thing that you know, that, like connecting like the alien with the religious is. It says a lot about like human psychology. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, who knows? If we have another world war, maybe something like this could begin again. But maybe it will be in the shape of, I don't know, trans-dimensional, or it could be like those lizard people, but good and benevolent this time. It could be like those, like the, uh, the, the, the Warhammer list of <laughs> utopian skins. We went full, we went full circle because they are actually like order aligned in in the Warhammer universe. Yeah, they they look like nice guys. They don't look evil. I mean, from what I've been able to see. Yeah, like their purpose is to fight chaos and like protect the the younger races. But the problem is they have like very robotic minds. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's like, you know, like you have to argue with a robot whose task is to protect you, but it does it in a way that is not convenient for you. Ah, uh, well. Anyways, based in the least, to say the least. All right, so. It has been, I think, over an hour and a half. And uh, shall we call it a, a day? We will continue with these podcasts. I mean, uh, next episode, we'll think about something else. Uh, yeah, I, I want to talk about ufology, well, honestly. All right, so it's set. Uh, the next show will be a ufology 
centered, a UFOlogy centered uh, podcast episode. And Warhammer. Did you lose me there for a second? Okay. Warhammer, UFOlogy, and uh, Monty Python. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, it was, this was me speaking with TK Sivgin. If you enjoyed this show, please uh, subscribe to this channel. Also, please consider supporting uh, TK Sivgin on Patreon. And I think you got some nice uh, projects to announce to our uh, listeners as well. Yeah, I just today I launched this new site called Hardeshur, which, I mean, you could also simply call the project a slightly more habitable Mars. Uh-huh. So it's like speculative evolution about the Mars as it was imagined in like the 1950s. Ah, nice, nice. And the link is in the in the video description as well. So uh, please give Hardeshur a visit. Uh, TK is very busy also writing for Rinia, which is the space station uh, with uh, different biomes we spoke about earlier. So all of these are in the video description. Please, if you like them, give them a read. And please consider supporting uh, TK Stevgen on Patreon as well. All, all right. right. I, that also support was support memo, please. Okay, okay. Yeah, I mean, I won't include my link in this video description, but if you Google, if you look for CM Kozaman in, uh, in Patreon, you also get a chance to give me a dime as well. Anyways, that was really nice. Thank you so much, my friend. I have to thank you. It's always nice talking with you. All right. So stopping the recording in three, two, one.